This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Green in the Apocalypse, your weekly dose of the merry and the morose as we look into global existential nuisances and local solutions. Ooh. Hey. Once again, I am Adam Grubb and in the studio joining me, we are sans bushy, but we do have the marvellous Kate Dundas. How are you, Kate? I'm good. I got a little bit nervous there, Adam, when you left and then came in just seconds ago and I was trying to think, oh God, am I going to have to do the introduction? I can't remember what Bushy says. <laughs> I can't rhyme. What am I going to do? But luckily you came back just in time with just that gorgeous intro. Well, thank you. And also in the studio is a smooth operator, Jed McCartney. How are you, Jed? Uh, I've been better, but I'm here. Yeah, thank you for coming I'm, I'm a in. Bit thicker than usual in the head, so look out. Yeah. Um, you were pumped about going to the air show recently. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big, big day down at uh, Tyab, the air show there, so... Uh, very excited, and yep. uh, any time you want to sit and watch about half an hour of video that I took, uh, <laughs> you know, let me know. Let's have a slide <laughs> night. <laughs> Great. Well, later in the show, we're going to introduce our guest for this evening, Andrew Butt, who's a senior, senior lecturer in community planning and development at La Trobe, but we also have a pre-record that we're going to play before that, and that's with Dr. Lenore Newman. She was a keynote speaker... I can't remember. Did I see you there, Kate, at the Urban Agriculture Forum? It's like your presence was hovering there. Your he colleagues did, were there. You did not. Yeah. so I was not there. Um, I only went for one day, but it was on last month and it was put on by Sustain, the Australian Food Network, which, uh, well, there was probably at least 10 previous Greening the Apocalypse pres- uh, guests there presenting and they covered all sorts of things relating to urban food security and urban and peri-urban farming as a as a part of that package for getting there so that should things cause some hiccups in our <coughs> futures uh, in, or just so we can have more sustainable food systems and and just systems where we know where our food comes from and that it's healthy and uh, is less polluting and less climate change causing um, there was a broad and robust discussion coming at it from lots of different angles of uh, all sorts of things around that. It's a fabulous conference, uh, sold out. One of our previous guests, Dr. Shona Candy, and some occasional host of this show, pointed out that if, and this is something that we talked about with her on the show, that their, um, she's part of the Victorian Eco Innovation Lab at Melbourne University, and they found that at the moment the area immediately surrounding Melbourne, the farmland, can provide for about 40, over 40% of our 
food needs. It doesn't currently, but it'd be it could upscale to that. So those what type of areas are those? Well, Where be... they included Kuirup, which is, you know, getting sort of out near Phillip Island kind of area. But yeah, Werribee, I think it's broadly speaking, it was like an 80 kilometre from memory radius. Mm. Yeah. But when you combine the encroachment of suburbia into that farmland and Melbourne's growing population, they said that by 2050, we're more likely to only be able to provide about 18% of our food needs locally in a time when it's going to be possibly more important for us to be doing that because Mm. of climate change and possibly spikes in energy prices of which food is very dependent on. So Lenore Newman, she's a writer and urban geographer. She's going to actually explain a little bit of her bio. She was the keynote speaker and she talked about her experience in Vancouver or she lives in the outskirts of Vancouver in a place called Abbotsford in British Columbia in Canada where they have a very unusual planning scheme that's been in place for 45 years which protects the farmland and she talks at length about the benefits of that and some of the challenges. So let's hear from Lenore Newman. Well, first of all, welcome to Green the Apocalypse and thanks for doing this interview. Very glad to be here, Adam. I I have to admit that until a couple of days ago I hadn't heard your name and um, looking you up online I thought maybe you were someone with a focus on the gastronomic aspects of food culture because you have written a book on that, haven't you? Yes, uh, speaking in cod tongues, a Canadian culinary journey. And I do wear two hats. Mm-hmm. I uh, both uh, look at farmland uh, and also cuisine. But, of course, they're deeply related. Uh, in Canada, the farmland definitely supports our cuisine, especially these intensive small farms that provide a diversity of fresh seasonal crops. And in the book, I do discuss how Canadian cuisine is very seasonal. Uh, We aren't the sort of people who want to have, say, a banana every day of the year. We are sort of keep track. And so, you know, we wait for blueberries, we wait for strawberries, and then for the apples and the pears. And so there's a lot of eating in season. Oh, go Canada. I mean, yeah, I can't say that for Australians at this point, but I know from self-moderation the joy that you get and the better quality food you get if you do eat that way. Now, you're also, as you, yeah, as you inferred, interested in um, broader policy pictures relating to farmland. Could you just fill us in with your credentials and, and Yes, and uh, for sure. And so I'm an associate professor at the University of the Fraser Valley and hold a Canada Research Chair in Food Security there. And my role as that chairholder is to look at the the regional farm scene and to sort of really look at how those uh, small and medium-sized farms are supporting a diverse industry. And I've been in that role for seven years now and gotten to really know the landscape. Mm. So the focus of your presentation today, which um, got many laughs and applauses, was largely around um, the particular circumstances that we can learn from British Columbia. Uh, what, what makes that region so special? Well, yes, and that was the idea. When uh, Sustain approached me, they really wanted to sort of hear the lessons learned about what's worked and what hasn't 
over 45 years of uh, very tight control of farmland in British Columbia. We have something called the Agricultural Land Reserve, mm. which is governed by a commission that uh, sort of sits above provincial government. So uh, they're a bit like a judicial system, and they govern what happens on farmland. And the goal is to make sure that it is being farmed. And um, that was put in 45 years ago because we were losing a lot of land to sprawl. And it's very good land, very productive. Uh, farm return in the region is 15000 to $20,000 per acre, which for Canada is extremely high. Mm. And that's because it's intensive. It's a lot of greenhouse, a lot of row crop, a lot of specialty crops like berries. And the thing with things like berries, we do freeze them and send them abroad. But also, if you want fresh berries, they got to be pretty close. And so, for example, those form, farms produce all of the chicken for Vancouver, all the eggs, all of the milk, and about 40% of the vegetables. We, of course, fall off in the winter and have to bring everything up from California. But to be honest with you, it's not quite as good. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into some of the co-benefits that you mentioned of this uh, unusual system that's been set up through policy, why should we care? Like, what are, what are the big picture issues that, that you're concerned about in terms of global agriculture and food production? Well, and I, th I think the amazing thing about what we did locally is we did it mainly because we were concerned on a provincial level, but at the time... The global farmland picture looked pretty good. Um, but now, when we look at it now, we are uh, really pushing the limits of how much farmland we can bring into production. About 14% of the Earth's land surface, uh, aside from the icy parts, is in row crops. And about 35% is uh, additional, 25% uh, actually, mm. is in uh, forage. Um, so anim so animals yeah, sheep or cows yeah. or goats. And so about 40% of everything we have is already feeding us. And we, we need land for other things. We that's need... pretty much all the world's flat land other than oh. the deserts, right? Oh, it totally is. There's some forest and some rainforest left, but we kind of want to leave that for both, you know, the purpose of having nature. And also we get forest products out there like wood and such. And some of them are wetlands, which are critical habitats. So we don't really want to sprawl our farms very much more. And... The way I like to say it, we need to leave room for food. And at the same time as we're hitting those limits, we have climate change damaging land and making it more challenging to farm. And we have cities sprawling outward. And every year we lose about 0.1% of the world's total farmland to sprawl, which, I mean, it sounds small, but, I mean, run it forward 100 years, that's 10% of all of our best land gone just so that our cities can sprawl outward instead of grow upward. Yeah, I, I think that could be an underestimate in the sense, when you say best land, that's disproportionately, the, the best of that farmland is around the cities, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's historical because, of course, before we transported things so far, our farms had to be close to cities. So we tended to build our cities, and most of the world's great cities are in river deltas, which have the best soil, for the obvious reason you could then feed your city. So you think of a London or a Paris or a New York. They're, they're all sitting at the mouths of these great rivers, and that's, uh, that's critical. And even here in this region, you look at Melbourne, it's... Uh, 
it's surrounded by wonderful soil, and that's probably why they put the city here. You yeah. know, that combination of port and farm. Yeah. You went out, I heard you went to Ararat, so you went out through the Western mm-hmm. District, which means you would have gone fairly close to Werribee, which is where most of the vegetable crops in the area are grown, and that is a, that's a river delta. And you can see it in the land use map if you go on Google Earth, and it's just these tiny little farms surrounded by... Yeah, much larger grazing land, but that soil is so important, and that's right at the edge of the urban sprawl. That it's actually where they filmed Mad Max One through a lot of that volcanic flat country. Oh my! Yeah, yeah. And it's, and, but, so it's not. It's more rangeland, but it's just encroaching up to the edge of Werribee now, where it's going to hit that um, high high productivity soils. Yes, and those soils are very special, and we tend to forget that. Uh, I mean, certainly a lot of our our, our calories come from wheat, corn, and rice. Mm-hmm. And those crops are crops that are grown intensively. Certainly wheat and corn, you grow it in, you know, 10,000 acre blocks. But a lot of the diversity, what makes cuisine and also gives us nutritional diversity and keeps us healthy, comes from small farms. And I know most of your country's asparagus, for example, is grown near here on fairly small farms because you don't want to grow 10,000 acres of asparagus. You want to grow a small amount intensively. And the same with uh, all sorts of crops from row crops like carrots and lettuce right through to things like hops so we can have beer. Mm. They're grown on small, intensive farms that can be commercial or can be direct to grower feeding the farmers markets and such or directly to chefs. So that small scale really punches above its weight. And if we lost it, you'd really notice it at the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, asparagus example you gave grows on um, sort of drained swampland around the Karambara area, but these highly organically rich free-draining soils. You mentioned in your talk the Silicon Valley idea of um, growing food in vats. Uh, I'm not really sure about... I haven't looked into, you know, artificial meat and these things, but they all require some kind of input from somewhere. It's all yet to be proven. Can we... Can we separate our farmland from good soil? Do you think, do you think that is a viable... I, I, I personally, now I'm a little biased, but I personally don't see that happening. I do think that, I mean, we already grow things hydroponically and very successfully sometimes. True. And these technologies do play a role. And that uh, the sort of vat growing already does exist. Mm. And it's often called GMO 2.0 because you take yeast and you genetically modify it to produce a product. And the product itself isn't a GMO, but it's a precursor is. So one of the best examples is almost all of the world's insulin is produced in that way. Right. And you can do that with... Um, you know, with other food products and they're trying, but I really, that's not going to happen with vegetables. It's not going to happen with grains per se. And even if say we do start growing meat in vats, which does have some applications that coming from Canada, if we had dairy that was growing, you know, sort of like a microbrewery, except Mm. a very high-tech one, that would help us in the north because cows can't survive there. So that would be great. So you're talking about some bacterial... Yeah, yeast. Yeast um, grown, usually milk equivalent. Yeah, Yeah. yeast would produce the precursors of milk. You would get, uh, you know, you'd get the proteins out of the yeast and then you'd mix mix in the fats from plants. Yeah. And you could get a vegan milk that came out of a vat, all Star Trek style. 
that's probably going to happen fairly quickly, but I don't think it'll replace everything. And also, the I mean, if you got, you got to look at the life cycle. So the yeast are presumably eating, turning sugar into proteins. They are, and, and so, so where's the sugar coming you from? You still have to grow the sugar yeah. in the soil, and sugar grows mainly, of course, in the tropics. I mean, you can do beet sugar, and yeah. you could feed that, but it's these things aren't free. Yeah. is you still need feedstock and you know it's not going to magically release all farmland it might help us a little bit these texts it might allow us to move away from really damaging dairy processes or something but yeah. uh, you know sugarcane doesn't have the greatest reputation either no it doesn't exactly yeah. and you know it's been very damaging to a lot of ecologies take mm. uh, i do field work in hawaii the sugarcane has ruined their best soil yeah and so I don't see a magic silver bullet that allows us to not use farmland. Yeah. Well, so I think we're on the same page there. I'm really open to being <laughs> challenged on that, but uh, we're probably too closely aligned for that to happen. I, I think that's true. That is the first part of our interview tonight with Dr. Lenore Newman, who was the keynote speaker last month at the Urban Agriculture Forum, and Agriculture Forum, and she was talking about the particular situation that they have in British Columbia in Canada which protects farmland and the implications for urbanites. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne. You're on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR and we're going to return to our interview with Dr Lenore Newman who is a writer and urban geographer from Canada and she's going to tell us a little bit more about the very interesting planning framework that's a that protects farmland in in Vancouver and British Columbia in Canada. So tell us more about uh, BC and so, what, 45 years ago, literal walls went up. Pretty well. And so what happened is because it's a very small region in the lower mainland, uh, which is where Vancouver is, it's only twice the size of Hong Kong. It's 2,000 square kilometres. And so we were losing a lot of land. Mm -hmm. And so the province decided we had to do something. And there was an election coming and all of the parties proposed various things, uh, growth boundaries, you know, uh, land trusts. But the leftist party won and uh, they put in a farm reserve and the agricultural land reserve. And they set aside 5% of the total province and only about 8% can be farmed at all. So they, they got most of the good farmland. And in our region, half of the land base, the flat land, was put into the reserve because it's delta soil. It's the best Mm. in the world. And so suddenly cities had to cope with the fact that half of the land base was off the table. In my home community of Abbotsford, where my university is, and that's it's Canada's top farm town. It produces $700 million in farm gate receipts per year. 75% of the land was put into the reserve set aside for farming forever and it was bold it was i don't know that we could do it now that the government fell on it actually because people were up in arms but the weird thing 45 years later we're all pretty happy yeah and have there been uh, challenges to this system along the way yeah here and there every now and then it depends which government is in i mean it's protected because it's quasi-judicial there's there's occasionally little nibbles. Um, people get a bit here, get a bit there, for and occasionally land is 
remove for, say, schools or, or the federal government can just take land out. So if they yeah. need a new airport, for example. But overall, we've lost 10 percent of the farmland in the lower mainland. And we, tri- and we tripled our population to 2.2 million people. Yeah. So it was, to me, that's acceptable. Yeah. I'd like to see it now shrink to not losing any, but I think given the technology we had when we did the original maps, given that a lot of these towns didn't have much time to respond and say, oh, we need some more industry space, I think we did really well to hold it to under 10. And in our my particular town, which is very agricultural, we only lost 3% over yeah. 40 years, which, you know, the town has grown from maybe about 10,000 people to 150,000. Mm. So, and without the room to expand, what happens? To, how do people... They go up. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so in our town, there's a mandate that all residential has to be brownfield. So you can build whatever you want. You can build single family or row houses or towers. Mm. but it has to fit on that brownfield site. Mm. And in Vancouver, of course, there's a lot of towers, although they protect their remaining single family very tightly, and that's a bit of a sticking point to some of the outlying communities. Mm. But yeah, for the most part, we've had to intensify. And I mean, Vancouver is experiencing crazy speculation, Mm. and a little bit of that high cost does come from the fact a lot of the land is locked off. But remembering we're surrounded by ocean and mountains, even if we released all of that farmland and it was gone forever, property prices probably wouldn't fall very much because it wouldn't take very long for it to build out. Yeah, and food prices would go up. Food prices would go up, and it just wouldn't it wouldn't be there. And I imagine, like, the price of the houses that are near this, the farmland. And from the map you gave, the, there's lots of incursions of the agricultural <laughs> land. Like, yes, yes. Just... There's some really interesting boundaries. Yeah. And certainly in Richmond, which is the closest suburb to Vancouver, uh, half of the island is intensive cranberry production. In fact, if you ever drink ocean spray, that's where the berries come from. And... Um, there are some places where there's cranberry fields up against tower development. So you'd be on your you know, 14th floor balcony watching the farmers. So it actually increases. We've, people have mapped this, not our group, but another group mapped it and found that there's a value increase if you're near it. There's an amenity value to the farmland. Mm. And there are places where there's the boundaries fuzzy, where maybe there's a farm market. You can go and buy your veg. Yeah. In a walkable range, which is just lovely. We said a lot of the sales are actually farm gate. Yeah, there is quite a bit of uh, farm gate sale. I mean, there's a lot of industrial. We do a lot of yep. berries. We're one of the yep. world's biggest blueberry and cranberry producers, and those go overseas. Yep. Um, but there's also a lot of food that just stays very local. Yeah. And, uh, but, I mean, for example, we have a, quite a famous corn region in the far corner. Mm. There's a bit of sort of an oven effect. The valley makes okay. it very hot. I was trying to figure out how it got yeah. that warm. And uh, so there's corn there that's quite famous, and it mm. goes, the chefs snap it up, and everyone goes and the farmers literally drive it into town in a truck, and you go and you buy your corn. Or yeah. you go out and you go to the corn maze, and yeah. you, know, you buy some baking. And you yeah, the get corn, corn maze, was that a pun? Or is there a, no, no. Oh, no, no. Uh, one, a, a very popular activity there near Halloween yeah. 
is to build a maze out of corn. Okay, like a, a maze, la- maze. A labyrinth. Yep. You know, and, <laughs> and um, in fact, one of my students uh, runs a farm, and he has designed a zombie maze for Halloween, and it's terrifying. I'm not going in it again. <laughs> what is it about cornfields and horror? It anyway. is. They're just it's scary plant. <laughs> nice to eat, but yes. Now... Are there any tensions between the farmers and and the residents? There, there are, and uh, you know, there's a constant kind of back and forth, and uh, that gets worse as more people move to the the fringes. Mm. But it, there's a there is first of all legislation that allows it's called uh, called the right to farm. Mm. It allows farmers to uh, farm the land in an appropriate way and not have to deal with complaints. They can't be sued if they spray manure or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do find that they do tend to be fairly civil about it, so... That seems yeah, Canadian. It's very, yeah, very Canadian of us, <laughs> and so the farmers might inform them yep. if they're going to be spraying manure, doing something loud um, or disruptive or dusty. And the residents, for the most part, are pretty respectful of the farms. There's always a little tiny bit of theft, but uh, we don't have much problem with theft and vandalism. Occasionally, we need municipal bylaws to uh, for example in the city of vancouver we fought and got uh, city chickens you're allowed to keep chickens in the city six chickens in Mm -hmm. your backyard on some of the fringes the municipalities had to say no because because of disease and there's large-scale chicken operations that feed the entire region so they had to say no we can't let you have chickens Mm. even if you want them and Mm. you know i think there's probably ways that that, but I do understand that at least they all work together. Yeah. And just um, finally, for people's experience living in this part of the world, do they feel connected to the farmland? Do they get out there much? Yes. And that sort of evolved. When it first started, I would say no. People didn't know where their food came from. And they got curious, I think, because so much of the food ends up locally. People started to go to farm stores, but you know, if you know your farmland's going to be there for the next hundred years, you'll build a farm store. And so people would take their kids there, and then their kids would take their kids there. And it sort of made it, I think there's more we could do. Uh, there isn't as much, uh, say, recreational use where you have, say, maybe biking trails like they do in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. London Greenbelt is a great example where you can go ride your horse or, you know, ride your bike through the farm country. We don't have as much of that. Mm-hmm. And I think we could, but there is there is quite a bit of exchange. People understand you have to make room for food. Yeah. All right. Well, been so great to talk to you, Lenore Newman. Thanks for being on Greening the Apocalypse, and oh, thanks for glad to be here, sharing Adam. this knowledge. That was Lenore Newman, writer and urban geographer uh, from Canada, and the keynote speaker at last month's Urban Agriculture Forum. We're going to unpack that interview a little bit in studio with uh, senior lecturer from La Trobe, Andrew Butts. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And RRR is where you are on Greening the Apocalypse. And we've just been hearing from Dr Lenore Newman and we now welcome Andrew Butt into the studio. Andrew is senior lecturer in the Community Planning and Development Programme at La Trobe Uni and co-editor of Conflict and Change in Australia's peri-urban landscapes. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Kate. Glad to be here. So we're here to think about the pre-record that we just heard um, from Lenore talking about their planning system in Canada 
and ways in which they've been able to protect peri-urban farmland from encroaching development. Yeah, it was really an interesting history you described there. I mean, something that's that's lasted 45 years in this instance. So it's it, when we think about a policy like that, it's not just the idea, it's the fact that it can stand the test of time despite the fact you see a lot of pressures and in... The case of Melbourne, I think we've we've had some fits and starts, some successes and failures in in trying to do some of the same things. I think about the same time, forty five years ago, uh, in the Victorian planning system, and particularly around Melbourne, that idea that urban sprawl was effectively eating up farmland potential and, and those sorts of risks was was recognised. Mm. Um, and we had policies in the Masson Ranges, in the Mornington Peninsula, in the Yarra Ranges, often a bit more about sort of the aesthetics of landscape protection but you know, whenever there's a, we have this other problem in Australian cities of course which is housing unaffordability and the solutions often seem to be ongoing land release. Mm. And that's what we've seen nibbling away at the edges of our peri-urban farming landscape at the moment. So for a bit of context land use at the moment is controlled by zones so there's various different zones applied to land and then we're able to do different things on the land depending on which zone it's in. So we've got farming zone protecting farmland, uh, various residential zones telling you how dense you can build. On That's it. right. And we've got things like green wedge zones are in Melbourne and we've got zones which are intended to be rural lifestyle areas, for example. So, so all of those things are, are meant to somehow dictate what we want to happen in that landscape. Of course, we've got the other problem that some of those areas like uh, like farming zones may well be seen by some as simply a, a holding pattern for future urban development. And yeah. we, we see that up the Hume Corridor right now. If anyone's driven lately sort of towards Seymour, the more and more land there is simply becoming future suburban development. And a lot of it's really well located for for suburban commuting, you mm-hmm. know, and so I, I can understand why that's happening. But, but the sense that there's nothing... Um, final about the sorts of decisions we've made over many, many years about urban growth boundaries in Melbourne, about what land, particularly really important land like Cooirup or or um, the Werribee area where we, we have a lot of, as Lenore described, high value crops in um, small holdings, um, things that, that we can't simply just grow somewhere else and expect to, um, to produce themselves seasonally in our markets and supermarkets. So we do have a bit of a crisis in, in Australian planning and not just in Melbourne uh, in the sense that we, we've had a long history of imagining that there was an, you know, boundless plains to share or farm or whatever we might do on them. Um, but really we have some of the most sprawling cities in the world and they are sometimes in the best located soils and rainfall areas in Australia, certainly in temperate Australia. Uh, and it's a conundrum that we've we've been thinking about as a community and politically for a long time, but never really come to any resolution. Yeah. Hmm. So Adam had mentioned earlier that forty percent of our food bull comes from areas like Kuirup and Werribee. Um, can you just talk us through what's happening in those areas at the moment? Well, we've seen quite a few things occurring. I mean, we we know that um, over a long period, certainly over the last twenty to thirty years, we've seen a shift from a lot of the smaller holdings in terms of production systems to northern Victoria. So we've seen an expansion of some large holdings around the Golden Valley, around Swan Hill, mm-hmm. um, up in Sunraysia, which are taking some of the slack, if you like, of, of horticultural production that mm-hmm. used to be quite local 
And it's now, you know, you can go on the Calder Highway and see the trucks coming down every night. Possibly, like, the further you go north, the more prone to climate change. Well, well quite possibly. I mean, what, dryness. Once we're in that, in that farming system, of course, and we know the politics of Murray-Darling irrigation water. Mm. So once you're in there, you're at the vagaries of that same problem as well. I mean, you no longer have... You've got high inputs and you've got inputs which are contested. Mm. They're contested yeah. nationally. And you have the inputs from transportation. Indeed. Well, yeah. All, yeah, huge distances and trucks. So, so that, you know, we, we're forgoing some of the advantages of low-input farming um, and as a, as a community, if you like, and we're taking on the disadvantages of high-input farming. Mm. If, so, so if we're kind of to leave suburban sprawl to the, to the market, if we got rid of planning altogether... Obviously, the value, the value is always going to be higher, probably even for the highest, best soils in the Werribee Delta, um, which is the most productive financially farmland in, in the state probably. Um, it, it's not going to compete with if it was divided up into housing blocks, if you've got a speculative market kind of thing, is it? So planning is just like how do we actually think about future needs um, when the market is generally not as good at looking that far into the future. Is that a fair delineation? Is that why it's important? I, I think so. I mean, I mean the, the, the practical reality is that we substitute. We substitute protected horticulture in, in um, you know, sheds, tomatoes grown somewhere else for soil-based tomatoes. We substitute transport for growing locally. And so, so high-value high land locally can be substituted for low-value yeah. land and transport. Mm. Of course... Whether that's really a resilient system or not is a big question and it's not one we can foresee. Can we foresee the time when, once again, the Murray-Darling irrigation system becomes so fickle that it's problematic? Can we foresee the time when transport costs are no longer uh, almost invisible in that process? Yes. Um, you know, they're, they're things which are really hard to foresee and so it's very difficult politically to have a planning system where you can say, well, let's just do that because it's the right thing to do mm. uh, in the face of the other sort of pressures there which say, well, actually, this is a lower-cost model. Um, this land can be used for something else, pretty valuable. Yeah, I, I can understand why this happens. So why do you think Canada saw success? How do you think they managed to keep on going for 45 years? Well, I suspect it's probably about community interest and, and, and looking at examples that have worked and not just in Canada. We can see examples in, in other parts of North America, for example, in, around Pennsylvania. Um, communities are committed to it and communities have re remained committed to it. So, so uh, we know right now, for example, there's um, a, a revisiting of the planning controls around rural land protection in the Masson Ranges. And again, as I said, it's not just about farming. Mm. But there's a community of interest there that has kept that issue on the agenda for about 40, 40 or more years. And once again, um, the political pressure to do something about it has come to bear. Mm. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether the solution they're getting is a good one from the state government. But nonetheless, the fact that this is an issue that is still matters to them is because of the, the sorts of pressure that that community's continued to place on those issues. Yeah, it's interesting when you reflect upon that community in Macedon and the political power they can exert over their landscape and the new communities that often don't exist yet in areas like new subdivision areas, areas on the fringe, on these farming areas. Who's going to lobby for that protection? Indeed, and, and, and even as um, in metropolitan Melbourne, who has an interest, sufficient interest in where their food's from to actually make that point clear hmm. um, in the face of other political pressures around, for example, land release for housing and housing the, the supposed housing affordability that that provides? Yeah. Hmm. 
Does the does the planning framework um, have much understanding when it when it, does it treat farming as just a blanket category, or does it understand the different qualities of soil types and rainfall, and also the different kind of farm types that there are? Well, I mean that certainly um, farming planning schemes in Victoria and other documents talk about that. Mm-hmm. But I, I would argue, and, and from work I've been doing around these issues, for example, around intensive agriculture, I'd argue that there's, there's an insufficiently nuanced view about what, what sort of farming we want yeah. and what sort of farming we have and how farming, which, which isn't a blanket issue, in fact conflicts with itself. Um, small-scale farming conflicting with large-scale farming, intensive agriculture conflicting with local agricultural sort of models, yep. um, that we understand that in urban systems. We understand that housing is not all the same and we understand other land uses. But I, I think planning systems in Australia for a long time have, have had a very um, generic view of farming and it's something out there. And I think we, um, we can see that that's not the case and we can see that in some instances we're at a point where we need to make decisions about how important it is that we have local production and what, what local production looks like. Hmm. There's one farming zone which doesn't differentiate between the different types of farming quality of land there is. And if you compare that to the residential zones, there's three or four commercial zones and industrial zones, there's there's two of each. So it's difficult to um, put forward an argument of why you'd protect one area of farming zone from another because mm. we don't fully understand that once that valuable soil in an area of high rainfall has gone... Because it does, that information's not embedded within the zone. Mm. You can't necessarily well, argue easily for its protection. That's right. And, and so that's from a sort of purely um, systematic level. But I think it also indicates something broader about how well committed um, government and communities are to actually making that difference matter. Mm. So, so certainly people all intuitively understand that difference. But when it comes to doing something about it, it's, it's quite tricky to, mm. to then make arguments about why... Uh, why this kind of farm is not the same as that sort of farm, why, why the consequences of this decision are more profound than that decision when they're all kind of just about maintaining a farm in operation, for example. What kind of issues do you get on the urban fringe with the different types of farming? Well, I suppose, I mean, the main tension is usually around, you know, so-called hobby farming, small-scale farming um, and uh, sort of commercial-scale particularly things like intensive agriculture. I mean, so there's there's one tension which is really between even categories of urban and non-urban, what, what houses where people are doing a little bit of farming but mm-hmm. but look and feel a bit like suburbia in conflict with people who are looking to operate large-scale and potentially um, noxious or maybe not, but certainly ones where there'd be a risk that, that they wouldn't be good neighbours. You're talking um, like broiler production, for or example. You know, yeah. intensive chicken yeah, or, or pig people, production, where it's going to smell. Even and... people operating scare guns, or people operating oh, yeah. spraying, or a whole range of activities which are seen to be part and parcel of particular farming systems, mm. in conflict with people who who are, are you know, largely urban in their orientation. That's one. Mm. Um, the others are, of course, those issues of whether that means those operations feel that in the long run they're better off to leave. Mm. Uh, and then the, then the third dimension of that is, well, farming that is actually at a reasonably small scale and has its own markets, particularly the, you know, people who are growing organic or growing for local production or growing very different products yep. um, in conflict with large-scale operations who have got um, you know, industrial farming systems at their heart. 
Mm. Yeah, they're, they're, they're constantly occurring. And then, of course, we've got the other dimension of people who are, th- are worried about landscapes, aesthetic, environment, a range of other factors that are important to us. In, in particularly in peri-urban areas. Mm. And we've talked about that, some of those conflicts on this show before with the GM seeds blowing into the neighbour's uh, farm. This, mm. well, I can't remember his name that Sarah had interviewed. So those are very real issues that are playing out at the moment. Um, I've been reading a few articles talking about neighbourhoods getting designed rather than around golf courses, around hobby farms. Mm. Have you heard of that as a phenomenon? Well, the, I mean, I, I know that there's examples of, you know, what clusters of housing around rural farming areas and you see examples of that in Australia and also examples dating back um, back to the 1960s, particularly in other parts of the world. And so um, they, they certainly exist and sometimes they're about, you know, collective farming systems and sometimes they're just about having a farm that's a neighbour um, and maybe having a share in that operation. Yeah. Of course, the farm, the planning system as we have it, and the, the the land subdivision system as we have it, is not very friendly to models like that. Yeah, it's not friendly to a mix of uses. No, it's a jigsaw pattern of thing next to thing, farm next to town next to broadacre farm. Well, well, I mean, I mean, and we can be critical of that, but I think for many planners and many local planning authorities like councils, they're also rightly suspicious because while something might present itself as being the sort of echo village clustered around an organic farm, chances are it's not that different to the golf course one either once it's actually built. And, and, and the, diff- the ability to tell the difference between the genuine article and the, the one that's trying it on is not always so easy. Yeah. Mm. Um, if that matters, which it, it does in the planning system, it matters that someone's you know, in a farming area really farming. Um, and if they're doing something that looks and feels like farming, then you know, testing whether that's true is not easy. Um, and so, for for all the for all the genuine echo cluster farms that you might see out there, there's also a bundle that really aren't that different to the golf course cluster. And there's still people driving their big cars into the city to get jobs. For example, so you know we we, we might need to think about whether that's a good idea or not. Mm. It's making me reflect upon our show <laughs> that um, we did with Ro- Rowan who was um, and growing trees for commercial enterprise. So oh, rather Rowan Reed. Than, Rowan yeah. Reed, yeah. So he was, he, he talked about rather than having one enterprise and rather than thinking about farms as a separate entity from a habitat, for example, you'd think of everything together. So you have your farm, you grow trees on it for biodiversity and for profit and have a kind of more complex web and mix of uses on each different type of land. And, and not just on each type of land. I mean, I'll go across the landscape. I mean, I think that's something we we expect to do when we think about cities. You know, we, we analyse and think about cities as complex things that have multiple land uses. We don't think about rural landscapes in quite the same way, at least mm. from a regulatory point of view, that at the landscape scale, we might expect there to be different things happening there. Mm. Um, we don't in Australia. It was something that I certainly thought a lot more about when I worked in the UK. And there was government initiatives to, in fact, my husband went out to landowners and talked to them about building biodiversity into their hedgerows and ways to kind of stack different types of things on top of one another mm. in the countryside. And I wonder if it was just because there was less of it. Well, I mean, people clearly do those sorts of things through, um, you know, I mean, it's now, what, 30 more years since we've had land care as, a, as an active um, an active advocacy role but also a local community network. Of course, in the UK, 
you can get paid to farm too, which mm. is quite a different different way it's of thinking about a whole different world. Um, how we might subsidise the externalities of, t- of telling someone what they might do, right? So whether or not that's the case after Brexit, we'll wait and see. But the, <laughs> at the moment, you can kind of direct people to manage land in particular ways in relation to them getting direct subsidies. Mm. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R as we commence the wrap-up having talked to... We had a bit of a pre-record with Dr Lenore Newman talking about the unusual planning structure in Vancouver, in British Columbia and the protection of the farmlands. And then we were joined by the marvellous Andrew Butt, Senior Lecturer in the Community Planning and Development Program at La Trobe who unpacked it a little bit for our local situation. Yeah, thanks Thanks so much for coming on, Andrew. Thanks a lot, Adam. It was great. It was interesting to hear Lenore's, particularly in contrast with what we're doing here in Melbourne, what we're doing right and wrong. Yeah. Mostly wrong. You, you're <laughs> involved in organising a, a conference coming up in the not-too-distant future, which will explore these issues. Yeah, I mean, later in the year we're running, in Bendigo actually, the Planning Institute of Australia and La Trobe University in the city of Greater Bendigo are running the... Australian Rural and Regional Planning Conference, and mm-hmm. and many of these things are quite central to it. You know, we're, these this is the place where land use planning matters perhaps most in in terms of rural issues. Is where we're on the interface between mm. what we anticipate land use is likely to be, what land use pressure there is, and what we want to ha- what we want to sustain. And usually, it's about not just urban encroachment, but it's about the encroachment of urban generated land uses, which which aren't quite the same thing always. Okay. Um, people wanting to live places, the pressures that that puts on on landscapes, the pressures it puts on land uses. And, of course, th- farming that's already there is a dynamic thing anyway. You know, usually they're getting bigger, they're changing, they're changing their operations and the impacts it has. So, you know, they're all kind of pretty critical issues to us. Definitely. Where can people find out about that one? Uh, well, there'll be a website coming up. Um, <laughs> but it will be advertised by the Planning Institute of Australia, oh, which, which has a focus on urban issues mostly, but we're trying to bring them into the rural areas. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.